Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. American Sid Goldsmith studied Russian and wanted to work in Moscow. Instead, the State Department sent him to Hong Kong in 1965. His book, On the Brink, an American diplomat, relives 1967's darkest days, describes those turbulent years, a time of riots, water shortages and deprivation. Sid Goldsmith is also a novelist and an accomplished flautist, and we'll be hearing some of his playing. In the next two programmes, he talks about gathering intelligence, the fear of how Hong Kong would blow up after Macau, and how speaking Cantonese probably saved his life. used to go down to the restaurants on Patterson Guy all the time. In North Point, yeah. I remember the very first time we went down there. We were with Lauren Hollander, a pianist who was giving a concert here that we know. And we went up and next to us were a table of eight Chinese. And they were all speaking English. And I was stunned and brash enough. I went over to ask and in Cantonese, why are you all speaking English when you're Chinese? And this guy laughed his head off. And he said, he said, are you kidding? It's the only language we have in common. Yeah, that was my lesson. I used to lunch often with Newsweek people. Sidney Liu, wonderful, wise old journalist at the time. I guess he was in his 50s then. And Maynard Parker, brilliant young journalist, just arrived. So Sidney was with him all the time. And he was 27. He looked like he was 40. And he certainly had the brains of, of, of journalism. He went on to become the editor-in-chief of Newsweek. So back in the 60s, I, I, I was so incredibly lucky with the people I met. The uh, CIA station chief, he rose to become the deputy director of operations, which sounds like a nice title, but what it means is that he was in charge of all clandestine intelligence gathering that, that we did worldwide. Describe how it is that you came to Hong Kong and when that was. It was a crazy route. I graduated from a Russian institute in New York, Columbia University. I had done my Navy service and I was then, after the graduate study, going in to actually work five years after I passed the Foreign Service test. And the personnel people said, where do you want to go? And I said, well, of course, Moscow. I mean, that's what I've studied. The answer came back. We don't send first-door officers to Moscow. We have more Soviet experts you would than we'll ever need. And you wouldn't like the pecking order. Now where do you want to go? I had about three seconds to think, I think. I said, well, what about Japan? I'd never been there. And they said, you look more like a Chinese type to me. How's about Taipei or Hong Kong with six months of Cantonese language training? intense. 
best thing that ever happened to me. That's how I got to Hong Kong. Never had expected it. Never had a Chinese course. Never had a word of Chinese. That's your U.S. Foreign Service for you. So were you a diplomat or a spy? Everybody's called me a spy. And in fact, I did work closely with CIA people dealing with what they were sharing with state in two posts. And the difference between a diplomat and a spy is that the spy will often pay for his information. But essentially, our task is very much the same as far as intelligence gathering. Our job is to understand what's going on. But the honest answer, and it doesn't matter whether anybody believes it or not, is that I was never on the CIA payroll. I was State, pay, state Department payroll from beginning to end. When did you first come to Hong Kong? It's October 1965. Do you remember what your first... I mean, you arrived by aeroplane? No, I was very lucky to learn that the State Department would pay for ship travel. <laughs> and it was counted as duty time. And so I just jumped at that. Now, the shipping line, which was basically kept alive by the State Department, the entitlement was minimum first-class fare on the ship. And so they recorded my interest, but made the reservation quite late so that the minimum first-class fares could be sold to people who would pay. And these really expensive ones, they lived off the government. But you asked first impressions. I hope you don't mind long answers, do you? No, that's great. Anyway, <laughs> anyhow, we come into the harbor on, on, on a beautiful day, and there's beautiful buildings up in the hills, and I take a look, and they're all on stilts or maybe toothpicks. I, I was stunned by the toothpick nature of the skyscrapers of the day. Tall, narrow buildings with, when I used to hike past them much later, would, would have six or seven stories of toothpicks holding them up, as I would say, against the hillside. And it worked with one exception. Did you ever read Noble House, James Clavell's book? Do you know, I haven't read that yet. It's great. He spent a couple paragraphs describing the collapse in a typhoon, the collapse of a 12-story apartment. It's true. He, oh, he yeah. did his homework. It's a great book. When you were arriving, what were you struck by? You know, I mean, as you say, you saw the sort of toothpick buildings, but you would have had, I mean, in terms of transport, you'd have had the Star Ferry, you'd have had the rickshaws. You wouldn't have had any of the under-the-harbour tunnels just yet? No, there are no harbour tunnels. The Star Ferry Passage was twice as long and twice as wide as it is today because I took it just to check. There's been an extraordinary amount of, of reclamation in the last 50 years. We did see coolies and rickshaws still. One of the things I soon learned was that if you had an automobile in Hong Kong in 1965, you were very distinctively upper class. 
And you had Big Wave Bay to yourself because Big Wave Bay and other nice places were almost inaccessible by public transport. And of course, none of the locals could afford a cab that far. And what was your job as such? I came as a trainee at first. This was my first overseas assignment. So I had some time in the visa section, which I don't know whether it was the biggest visa section in the world, but it was the most important, largely because they spent a huge amount of time tracking down visa fraud, people who had bought false identities. And then I was transferred to be the apprentice to the Hong Kong Macau political officer. There was only one. The mission was essentially the whole effort of intelligence gathering was focused on the China mainland. I mean, we had no assets, as we would call them, in China. Relations were terrible. It turned out that the guy who was assigned the job, he was about 20 years senior, and like most of us in the Foreign Service, we, no, sorry, we can't give you your home leave now. We need you so badly. He decided to take it. He just didn't show up. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how I fell into the job. He finally showed up about six months after it's expected, but by that time I had been permanently assigned after reporting on the, the Macau crisis. So how did you watch China? We watched China. I had to watch China because there was so much Chinese involvement in the 1967 riots. But for that I had a lot of help. Uh, there was a five-man political section. Those were the State Department people. They were heavily reliant on newspapers. A lot of newspapers were coming out. You know, of course, they met people and they talked constantly. The CIA also watched China very, very carefully. The interesting thing is that one of their best sources was unclassified, was the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. And they would pick up these regional broadcasts, which showed some of the factional chaos that was going on. Foreign Broadcast Service was... Oh, Foreign Broadcast Information Service was started actually during World War II. It was an open source. Its purpose was simply to listen to open broadcasts. It was under the CIA, and those broadcasts revealed information, especially in places where you didn't have access to information, like behind the Iron Curtain later on, certainly China. And during World War II, we monitored what broadcasts we could get from Nazi-occupied Europe.
within the State Department you'd have had you you've had now intensive six months Cantonese. You would then have people who uh, were Mandarin experts or actual. You would have. Did you actually use anybody who'd come across? Not to my knowledge. I had a political assistant who came across as a boy and told me his stories about he how he hopped on trains to get as far away from the Civil War as possible. And he got to a tunnel, he hopped off, <laughs> he wanted to live to see another day, stole food, and got out. But there was a program where refugees were interviewed, so that was another source of information. Newspapers were big, these guys went to bars. Journalists went to travels. bars. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know any of any journalists at that time who said they were on the payroll. But there were sort of later exposés about how the CIA was recruiting some journalists, not in Hong Kong particularly, but just in general reports. So what sort of bars did you go to, like Foreign Correspondence Club? Or? I wasn't a bar guy. Essentially, I had, well, let me just put it out and confess. The journalists were wonderful sources for me because they were going everywhere they could get information. And they were wonderful journalists. There was Tillman Durden of the Times and Stanley Carno of the Washington Post and Bernie Kalb of ABC. And the ones who were closest were the Newsweek people. Apparently they had a big budget. And I remember them not only for their rare insight, but for bird nest soup and... Kauruju, Peking duck, you, you, you name it, the good dishes. I think we even had beggar's chicken one time. But the interesting thing is I had access to all of the people who did go to the bars because, quite astoundingly, Bill Wells, the incredible spy master, agreed to share all of his take with me because the deputy chief of mission who was on good terms with him, it's not always that way, told him, you know, we don't want to look like fools just reporting from the newspapers and so forth. So they agreed. I'd go up to the office and, and read the take. I couldn't take it with me. I could not use anything that I couldn't cloak so that it couldn't be traced back. And it was a wonderful arrangement. What do you mean by spy master? Well, in the sense that it's just a term that people people use for the CIA. They're spies, but the, the head of a particular mission I, I call the spy master. I was there for uh, till June 68. 
Wow, so your actual time really does encompass the Hong Kong riots of 1967, which you highlight in your book, On the Brink. So being here in the run-up, of course, you'd also had riots in 66 of a different sort. There's water shortages, there's pressures of not full access to education, so a bit of a disgruntled populace, plus you've got the culture of evolution across the border. So with your spymaster and also you in, in the diplomatic service here, when did you start getting a feeling that there might be a lead up to this well i hate to embarrass other sources of intelligence <laughs> no you uh, don't <laughs> but but as far as getting the feeling i used to hike with a batch of chinese guys who were uh, introduced to me by my wonderful assistant thomas Hui. i wish i could find him i don't know whether he's even alive we went hiking we got into a conversation and a couple of these hikers said, you know, Hong Kong's going to blow up, and it's probably going to be sooner rather than later. Now, this was at the time... So what year is this? This is now around December 1966, because Macau was blowing up with X-ray exhibits of eight bullet-ridden skulls when the police shot to kill at a demonstration. So I took this information up to my bosses at the time, and they said, it's not going to happen in Hong Kong. Uh, it was sort of brushed aside. And they had some logic for this, because the communist apparatus here strongly supported the government efforts to restore order at the time of the April 66 Star Ferry riots. So that was one piece of evidence. Very soon after Macau capitulated, we knew that Portugal had offered to give sovereignty back to the communists and they refused and that was read universally by people who analyzed this stuff that they weren't going to touch Hong Kong in fact I find the idea of communist inspired riots very much incomplete for describing what went on particularly how it started and I have a timeline of when it was not communist inspired riots but Beijing appointed communist organization leaders deciding that they'd better show some loyalty to the Cultural Revolution. Oh, so it sprung out of Hong Kong. Yeah, or, yeah, or they are going to lose their jobs. They might be sent out for education. And so essentially, my view is that the riot started out spontaneously. The locals decided if we don't pick up on this when it's so obvious, we might be out of work, out of life, and that Beijing was the last to jump aboard the train and, and to make hay out of this. your role in terms of American involvement in Hong Kong? Would that have affected investments, business here? Okay, what was my role? In a sense, I was just like the journalists. But our role in the days long before CNN is we were desperate to get our reports on the desks in Washington before they started reading it in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So I had an awful lot of very late 
nights. So in a sense, was to gather all their information, do it in a way a newspaper did, but in a cable, with what we knew of the facts, and then speculation. And there was a lot of speculation. I mean, Bill Wells made it clear to me. Bill Wells. That our spy, our fa- my favorite spy master, I loved him. I mean, he... He treated me as an equal colleague, you know, and he was a mentor. And he told me right from the beginning, he said, make sure you're always aware you're dealing with gossip. And there was another who I called Deep Throat. But the editor of the book said, Deep Throat is Watergate. This is different. But YC Liang, Liang Yanchang, was head of the Macau Gold Syndicate. And I was introduced to him, and he was prescient. I also think he was advising the governor directly. I don't have a lot of evidence for that, but as soon as things calmed down, he held a dinner in the governor's honor to which I was invited. Twelve courses, everyone was snake. Oh, it's delicious. I mean, memorable too. I mean, it's 50 years later. But YC knew and explained everything for why the troops were coming up to the border, the delicacy of Joanne Lai's position, how complicated all this was because at that time there was panic about the troop movements. And he explained that the real purpose was to keep the ruffians out. He said, but you'll have border incidents, as we did all the time, because the PLA have to create the feeling that they're of the people in the area. And so that even while the PLA was around, for example, there was a kidnapping of a British officer. It took until November of 67 to to get them shaken loose. There was a negotiation that went on for months. incidents on the street, what did you witness? I had the pleasure of, of, of being solid evidence of how little we anticipated that this labor dispute would turn into full-scale riots that would spread beyond the vicinity of the flower factory. On May 11th, 67, a day forever remembered and, and grateful for my survival, I was asked to go and take a look at what we called the atmospherics. And I was nervous about this because there had been incidents at the flower factory. And so I called Sidney Liu. I figured I ought to do this with the Chinese. And so the two of us were walking peaceably down in Tungtao resettlement estates. And before we could even duck, there were hundreds and then thousands of people Apparently, the police, and there were supposedly either 400 or 600, I'm not positive which, breaking up the flower factory demonstrations. And these people just poured into the resettlement estates, and the resettlement estates emptied into the streets. And Sydney and I were caught in the first big riot. I had a flight or fight, big-time syndrome, calculating and instinctively that maybe if I ran, they would declare victory. <laughs> that, okay, the Bakpeju, the white-skinned pig, was scared like hell, and we'll let him go. 
So, of course, as soon as that happened, Sidney melted in the crowd because it was already dusk turning dark, and he went to the airport. But uh, I didn't have a very good time. The Cantonese probably saved my life. They kept yelling, cop. And I said, no, 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 I'm a missionary studying Chinese. I'm a missionary studying Chinese. And eventually uh, they got me out of there, but it wasn't all over then. So um, what were they doing? I mean, were they violent towards you? Oh, sure. My great good luck was that when they surrounded me and and the cops and white-skinned pink yelling, they pressed in so close there wasn't a telling blow. I mean, I was hurt but I was conscious, aware, and the only thing that I really know, I said, I must not go down. If I go down, either inadvertently or deliberately, I'm sure I'm going to be trampled to death. And then, I think it was five, maybe six people, I could hear the discussion. Hey, we don't want trouble. And so they told people, we want to get him out of here. I thought I was safe for a little while. I wasn't. I passed a couple of cabs when I got out. I guess they got me about 150 yards or so away from the crowd. Shirt was ripped. I was a little bit bloody. Cab, two cabs pulled up and they looked at me. I I tried to open the door and they drove off with my hand on the door. Fortunately, I retrieved it. They weren't going to take me. Sometime later, and and I was well conscious, but really just trying to hide in shadows to get down the street. And I heard shouts and screaming, fortunately quite a distance away by that time. And I said, I don't like this at all because of this. this, People were coming this way. I could tell the direction they were in. I said all kinds of nonsense. and Well, no, non-repeatable words. But I saw two buildings with a space about 18 inches wide at the most. In other words... I I had to go in sideways, and I said, at least if they spot me here, it's it's going to be one-on-one. And I went in as far as I could. Fortunately, they all came by screaming, and I was okay. But I was trembling there. So that part is etched in memory almost second by second. But damned if I can remember exactly how I got home. I think, I'm pretty sure I made it to the Hong Kong ferry and crossed over. But I wouldn't swear by <laughs> what happened there. You know, I eventually got home. Mm. And of course, it was an interesting night because there were two senators in town having dinner at the consul general's home, along with the senior consuls. And of course, that's when the police called. They couldn't find me. Well, the senators were just... And this I got later from my friend Bert Levin. The senators were Furious! How could you send somebody into a Chinese riot? Needless to say, it was an unhappy evening for them. I called, and, and, and you know, basically the message was just tremendous relief because they had been calling the police every twenty minutes or so. Did you find them? Did you find? No, we haven't found them. I guess they didn't look in the, the wall either. But I couldn't identify of that running crowd that I was so terrified of. They they were obviously coming from the riot site. I didn't see police, but I later learned that a lot of heads were knocked by police looking for me. So this is at the outset of this sort of rather turbulent period. It certainly wasn't my outset. Even at that time, I'm quite certain 
This was a spontaneous riot. Yes, there might have been a little comfort mission, but there was no evidence whatsoever that we could get that this was a communist organized riot. These people just poured out into the street. I didn't see a single red book, little mouse, mouse little red book being waved. My thanks to Sid Goldsmith, the author of On the Brink, an American diplomat relives 1967's Darkest Days, published by Blacksmith Books. Next week, Sid Goldsmith talks about living conditions here at that time and activist urban councillors such as the late Elsie Elliott, who would become Elsie too. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>